Hello, and welcome to everyone joining us from across the United States, from Canada and other parts of the world. My name is Joseph Wong, and I'm a professor and vice president international at the University of Toronto. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the third event in our four-part series titled, The World We Want, which we present to you in partnership with Zocalo Public Square. Today, we ask how our cities can prepare for the post-apocalypse. Across the globe, cities are where the impact of COVID-19 has been felt most acutely. The University of Toronto, set in one of the world's most dynamic and diverse cities, has a deep commitment to Toronto's success, but also through global partnerships to the flourishing of cities around the world. At U of T School of Cities, a world-leading multidisciplinary center for innovative urban research, our faculty and students explore complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. It is now my pleasure to introduce Moira Shuri from Zocalo Public Square. Thank you, Joseph, and welcome to Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. We are so proud to be presenting this event series in collaboration with the University of Toronto, and the series has also been underwritten by the Consulate General of Canada in Los Angeles. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. As the international climate reporter for the New York Times, Somini Sengupta tells the stories of communities and landscapes most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. She has reported from a ferry on the Congo River, from a Himalayan glacier, and from the streets of Baghdad and Mumbai. In her coverage of the United Nations, she also reported on global challenges that continuous wars pose to women's rights. Over to you, Somini. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this evening. As a city person, as someone who was born in a city, will probably die in a city, few things are more important to me than the question of what's it going to take to make our cities better for everyone. Um, the majority of humanity today uh, around the world lives in cities, of course. And this last year was really uh, a year of reckoning for all of us. Cities is where the coronavirus pandemic first hit. Uh, we witnessed our, our neighbors and our friends getting sick and some of them dying. Cities are where protests for racial justice first emerged. Uh, cities are where climate change made its impacts well known. And as we emerge from this pandemic, we get to decide as the people who live in cities, what is gonna happen, whether we can make our cities better uh, as we emerge from this. So to help us imagine the possibilities, we have an incredible panel of thinkers and doers with us today. I'm just gonna quickly introduce them all. Um, First off, Richard Florida. He is an urbanist and a professor at the University of Toronto School of Cities and Rotman School of Management. Richard is the author of eight books on cities and urban planning, the most recent of which is called The New Urban Crisis, which explores the challenges of gentrification, segregation, and inequality. Richard is also the co-founder of the journalism project called City Lab. 
Next up, we have the first of two mayors on our panel. Mayor Yvonne Aki Sawyer is the mayor of Freetown, Sierra Leone. She, is, uh, she was elected in 2018. She is very well known for her plan called Transform Freetown, which is a plan that seeks to revitalize the city in a variety of aspects, including environmental solutions, jobs, public transit. Uh, she is also known for an initiative to plant trees called Freetown the Tree Town. She has been honored as Order of the British Empire by the Queen of England. Our second mayor from a very different part of the world is uh, Mayor Serge Dedina from Imperial Beach, California. Serge was elected in 2014. He is also the co-founder and executive director of Wild Coast, an organization that works to conserve coastal and marine ecosystems in Baja California, uh, Mexico, and Cuba. Sorry, in California, Mexico, and Cuba. And he's the former founding director of the Nature Conservancy's Baja California and Sea of Cortez program. And finally on our panel, Dr. Samane Mwafi. Uh, she is uh, trained as an architect and is senior researcher at Forensic Architecture, an international agency that investigates human rights violations using a range of new media technologies. She oversees Forensic Architecture's Center for Contemporary Nature, which focuses on environmental violence. So a warm welcome and thank you to the panelists for joining us. As we get started, I wanna um, just let our audience know to please think of your best, most incisive questions. Please write your questions in the YouTube live chat. We're gonna be uh, taking some of those questions at the, towards the end of the, the hour. So as we, um, as we get started to get to know you all better, I would like to start with a lightning round. And in this lightning round, I request that you limit your answers to three words or less. Uh, first lightning round question. Tell us something about, one thing about the city you were born in without telling us the name of the city you were born in. Richard. 1967 racial unrest. Mayor Yvonne Aki Sawyer. 1792, freed slaves. Mayor Serge Dedina. Um, film industry. And Samane Mwafi. Um, a river and the mosques. Okay, so your answer. First, let's start with you. Samane Mwafi, the answer. The city you were born in, the name of it. <laughs> Esfahan. Mm. Mayor Serge Dedina. Los Angeles, LA. Mayor Ivana Sawyer. Three Town, Sierra Leone. And Richard, Florida. Newark, New Jersey. Mm. Second question. Lightning round, three words or less. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase livable city? Richard, Florida. Bicycling in a ravine. Mary Vaughn. Green space, water. Mayor Serge. Nature and open space. Samane Mwafi. Clean air. Great. Lightning round. 
Uh, question number three, the last one. Tell us your favorite place in the city that you live in. We'll start again with Richard. The ravines. Mary Vaughn. Lumley Beach. Serge. The ocean. And Salmon Mwafi. The ponds. Oh, so many um, bodies of water. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> love that. Okay, we're going to move on to the more substantive questions. So 2020 was quite obviously a year of learning for all of us. What did you learn in 2020 about what makes a city good to live in? It could be things that actually happened in 2020. You know, for me in New York, it was restaurant tables spreading all over the streets where cars once stood. Um, so things that happened or things that didn't happen and need to happen immediately. So we'll go in the same order on, on this one. So Richard, please. Well, and things are so tough in Toronto right now, again, which is so, so sad and so tragic, especially as things are opening up not so far south in the United States. And you saw this with the game last night on the baseball game where Texas, whether you like it or not, Texas stadium was filled yet Toronto went into almost a lockdown. I think for me, I went through a big personal reset. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. And I say that from a position of privilege. I have little kids, I got to spend, they're three and five. What better time for a dad to spend with two young daughters that I would have been away a lot. But I think in Toronto this summer, we set, Jane Jacobs always wrote about this, the front stoop and the front porch and ours was always vacant with a, like an artwork on it. Well, we had the artwork, to, we gave it to someone else and we set up a front porch with a sofa and some chairs and we'd always make a bottle of rosé or a bottle of white wine available. And I got to know my neighbors. Like I didn't know my neighbors before this summer. I know that sounds so odd, but I developed a whole new friendship network. And the thing about it is I'm a very much a workaholic and I've never, my wife has very close friends. I never did. For the first time since I was a university student, I made close male friends. So those are the things that really stick with me. Mm, that's quite beautiful. Um, a bottle of rosé on the, on the porch. Mm -hmm. Mary Vaughn, your lessons so I, from 2020. Yeah, I think for me, um, it's it's quite different. It was it's. I was concerned. I've always been concerned um, in running for office about the challenges of the city, um, but we have a particular challenge with informal settlements. What people casually refer to as slums, um, and thirty five percent of my population, my residents live in these in communities. When COVID struck, um, and the the concept of social distancing of of physical distancing became a thing, um, it's sh it's shown a light on how desperate these situations were. I mean, I've been motivated. I've been in office. This is my, I'm just coming on to three years, my third anniversary in May. Um, and in Transform Freetown, one of our objectives is to upgrade slums as well as to provide affordable housing. But COVID brought it, um, brought it to the fore in a way I, I just, you know, the, the concept, finding myself in a position where your the two the two tools you have are hand washing and social distancing and you know that people cannot do either um so uh, i think what it did for me was just really just 
lit a bigger fire, you know, within me, um, increase that sort of sense of urgency um, that a solution has to be found. And that solution is one which has its roots, its anchor in urban planning um, and building permit issuance, two functions which don't sit with the city government. Uh, although in law they do, in reality and practice, they sit with the central government and the consequences have been devastating. Um, so yeah, I think 2020 just made, made me more determined that not just in my city, but in cities across the world where, where we have this phenomena, um, pandemics and informal settlements do not go well together <laughs> and something needs to be done. I must hasten to add that we've been very, very fortunate. We don't know what it is, whether it was the air or the water or the fact that we'd gone through uh, Ebola um, epidemic, but we had in total to date, we still have less than 2,500 confirmed cases in the city um, and less than 80 deaths. So we've been very, very fortunate, but it's not because of the way the city is structured. It, it's clearly something else, which maybe in, in due course and time, if somebody's interested enough in doing a study, um, we will find out why it was that COVID passed us by from a health perspective, although it certainly did not pass us by from economic hardship. So my, mine is less beautiful, I'm afraid, mm -hmm. um, but it is my reality. And it is so basic, you know, the, the luxury of being able to wash your hands uh, is, is, is a luxury for so many people rather than, um, you know, the right that we take for granted in so much of the world. Mayor Serge Dedina, for you, the lessons of 2020 that you want to carry forward or immediately address? So my city is surrounded by water. We're a city of 28,000 people on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and so we've been living a, an apocalypse for years now because of a sewage and toxic waste crisis. When I say crisis, I mean just today 30 million gallons of toxic waste and sewage uh, were in, just flowed into our town. Our residents complaining about getting sick from the stench of toxic waste. That's a low day. A common day last year was 100 million gallons a day of raw sewage and toxic waste. It's an apocalypse. So we've learned what it that you have to deal with things quickly, that you can't make excuses about not responding. So I think for me, what, what the, the, this pandemic and crisis was an excuse to do was dismantle the bureaucracy and Politburo-like you know, rules and regulations that we've established in the city that only help the powerful, the wealthy, and the privileged get things done in cities. And so that's something I think is important. So we allowed restaurants immediately to, to have you know, tables in parking lots that the Coastal Commission of California regulates and is you know, upheld by zoning regulations. So we hope to continue that. Um, you know, trying to figure out how to do street fairs you know, democratically and, and easily, right? That we're, we're safe. But more importantly, I think commitment just to putting people first, that, that every resident in our city, every resident counted, that we, we, we were focused on every street, every corner, every neighborhood, every family, that they understood that every, every staff member of our city and every council member and the mayor put them first. That was our only priority was the health and safety of our residents. And that, that democratic bottoms up approach to city management is something we're taking forward as we move forward with the city where we realize that nature matters more than ever community and family connections matter more than ever and that we've suffered as a result of not having those connections. It's, it's killing our, our community. It's 
we're in a devastating crisis with our children and our seniors, especially. And that, you know, we need to make sure that cities become places where we're investing in people and nature first. When you say that's killing our communities, do you mean the isolation has been punishing? Yeah, if you go out on the street right now, maybe many of you have had this, people want to talk, people want to share. I was at the car wash and a guy with tattoos everywhere, like full bro dude, right? Like muscled bro dude. When you talked to me about how we became a caring person and we had this really deep conversation. It was, it's been really moving to have, to see the way people want to connect and people are just missing each other. I'm going to get teared up thinking I miss my kids, right? Like, we, I, you know, I live in a working class community on the US-Mexico border. We hug each other. You know, we, 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 we give bro hugs. It's shakas. It's big arm handshakes. I mean, it's, people are connected. People touch each other. They are talking to each other. They're at street ends on the beach connecting, right? That stuff is intrinsically, we've devalued that, that stuff. And that's why I think, Richard, you probably know that you're an academic and, and seminar, right? The public, the importance of public space, the importance of the Zocalo, right? Where, and the beach, which is our democratic sort of Zocalo that we have in Southern California, where everyone connects very democratically and equitably, right? Mm. Um, Dr. Samane Moafe, your lessons, please, from 2020. Um, the, the, what I want to draw on is with regards to social movements um, and a kind of a shared awareness, an increased shared awareness um, of an alternative kind of a power that citizens can exercise, the power to bring accountability, an alternative power to kind of like the existing structures of power. Um, and an example that I want to say um, to draw on is, um, is the example of um, August 4th, um, the explosion, when, when uh, the explosion um, devastated the port of Beirut, during the explosion, we had tens, hundreds of citizens taking their smartphone out and filming it. You know, not only filming it, but um, so, so, you know, like also, also citizens different kinds of citizens, you know, workers in the silo building that was right to the next to the warehouse, um, residents on the Skyline building, which are from a very different economic background, um, residents of Shafia neighborhood, uh, of, of um, uh, Jamaica, of, um, of all around, you know, like from also from the, um, from the sea. Um, and, and so you had all of these different kinds of people, different kinds of backgrounds um, filming it and not only filming it, but also posting it to social media with a kind of a mistrust to the existing structures and avenues um, for bringing accountability, right? I mean, why else would you put it into social media? And, and with that also, we saw the rise of, um, of, of new kinds of investigations, of open source investigations by um, 
people who do not have the kind of like um, the, the the forensic power of um, the state um, teams of forensics, right? So the kinds of investigations that I'm talking about in Beirut are not the ones that were um, uh, done by the French delegates or by the Russian delegates or by um, the kind of like the, the Beirut state officials or by the Americans, but actually kind of by journalists, by activists, who by, um, by geologists, by kind of like um, uh, 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 scientists were looking at satellite images, so on and so forth. And so we were also um, within this group of people that we could um, build a kind of, a, if you like, a kind of a polyperspectival 3D model of the event and then make it open source so that others can investigate it. And it's kind of like, you know, and, and so this is one piece of the evidence and it can all come together and it can, and it can slowly build and, and slowly can have a, an, a, an understanding of the truth that is not the kind of like the high um, truth of the court, but actually a, a truth that is shared that is built mm -hmm. and is rooted in citizens' testimonies and citizens' um, um, acts of witnessing. And this is something that was that is not so specific to the Beirut case. No, we saw mm -hmm. it with the case of George Floyd. We saw it with the case of Ahmad Erekat in Palestine. It's 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 it was kind of, you know, like this 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 awareness of the of 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 the power of citizens to bring accountability i think this this was something that was so moving mm. um, um so that's for you the lesson of 2020 many more people gathering information designed to hold power to account i have a question about the past and this is a question really for you richard and for you mary vaughn what are the lessons of previous pandemics that we should keep in mind. So there's a, a wonderful thread there, Mayor Yvonne. I listened so intently to your remarks. And uh, with a fellow here in Toronto and Ottawa, we actually did a study of just what you said, the effects of the pandemic on the informal settlements of the global South. And, and we were struck by what you said about no ability to socially distance whatsoever day-to-day -day life precludes it and, and basic sanitation. But what, when you said this, my mind's eye raced back to my grandparents in Italy who just two generations ago had the same thing. And I live in such an advantaged world in North America. My father who was born just after the Spanish flu, they had no running water in his, now they got running water when he was a teen, but they had a so-called outhouse. And, and this whole idea of modern hand washing, the powder room, it's a century or so old, even in, in the global north. So it's, it's amazing the progress some of us have achieved, but, but in some parts of the world, like where Mayor Yvonne is and other parts of the global south, the conditions that we moved out of a century or 75 years ago are still the conditions under which most people. So I think there's a lesson from the past that we can be resilient, we will persevere, our cities will survive, even during the great plagues in Europe, you know, when 30 or 40 or 50% of cities populations were, were killed, we still, urbanization is in cities and this mayor, Serge, this, this force of being together, connective fiber will prevail as stronger than infectious disease. But I think for all of us listening, 
our grandparents or great grandparents faced this thing in such a different way. And I think when we, when, when I hear people saying how much we suffered and we have suffered compared to what this was like in the global South or what it was like a century ago, we, we were able through social distancing, physical distancing, through government's funding to survive it in a different way. So history suggests uh, that we will persevere, but the struggle, the struggle continues. Richard, one more beat on that. After the 1980-1918 influenza, uh, that pandemic, were, were there public policy interventions that were accelerated that bear lessons for our, our present moment? Well, there's a good and a not so good lesson. The not so good lesson is that the 1918 pandemic was followed not by this outpouring of social betterment and movement for human and social and racial justice. That had to wait until the Great Depression and the post-war years. It was followed by the Roaring Twenties. You know, to this time, the most, unto uh, our age, the most unequal, the most class divided, the age of the robber barons, the jazz age. And so, so I think that what happens in the wake of pandemics is people recoil and rebound and maybe don't double down quite immediately on, on conquering some of the social and economic challenges. On the positive side though, we did make basic um, shifts, in, not just in public health, in architecture. We added a lot of public space. We added a lot of parks. Uh, we, we added things like modern restrooms, powder rooms on the first floor. This use of sanitary fixtures, the stainless steel faucets and the porcelain tiles, the idea that you would have a powder room on the first, they were small things, drinking fountains where people could get fresh water or to wash the hands in a public park. There were small adjustments in the way our cities were constructed that endured, but it took a while, the full lessons. The other thing that I wanted to say in response to Mayor Bedina about human contact, um, I read this story and I'm not an expert in psychology but that the invention of modern child psychology in the 1950s was in part an outgrowth of the fact that during the Spanish flu, parents were really scared to hug their children, their, their little ones. And these kids developed a kind of complex, an emotional complex because mom and dad and aunts and uncles were scared to hug them. And modern child psychology with this emphasis on hugging your child, keeping them close, it came out of the fact that they were struggling with so many adults who had this kind of alienative disorder. So. I think this other after effect might be this loss of human touch and contact. When you said that drinking fountains appeared in our cityscapes, I was immediately reminded that segregation persisted for many decades after that. Well, right? I think so it wasn't, I to, it sort of solved one problem, but it didn't solve another problem. Is that the divisions of race and class have gotten deeper and that this pandemic has hit hard both in a public health way or a physical way in an economic and social way. And it's exposed that as some of that said, it's exposed that to us in a way, you know, I mentioned 1967 racial unrest in Newark. This was different and it exposed, and now we had a cross-class, cross-racial, cross-generational group saying enough's enough. So yeah, I think the unfortunate thing is that we see the effects of this continued segmentation and segregation of our society. Mary Vaughn, the lessons of previous pandemics. Um, yeah, I think before I, if I before I touch on that, I just want to pick up on something that um, 
that Richard just said, um, and it's about the resilience and the example with the Spanish flu and you know and what happened in those years that followed. Um, I think that's all really true. And but I would I would submit that we have potentially a situation now um, where we've got other drivers, we've got external factors which um, are going to have an impact um, that may not allow that natural that sort of natural bounce back to happen. Um, in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of climate change and the, the effect that that is having on many economies in the global south where um, the need for adaptation is sucking resources which often do not exist, um, resources which need, are needed to improve service delivery. You talk about the, and rightly so, um, the introduction of the powder room, the tweaks, the, 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 the changes in hygiene, um, but the changing in housing, the policies, most of which resulted from major investments in the economies of those countries um, because you needed those investments to drive the policy changes, the public health improvements that were required. So where we are today is that for many countries who are facing these, you know, looking down the road and saying, what do we do post COVID? Um, we are hearing of huge stimulus packages in many parts of the world. I mean, the EU has an amazing one. The US obviously has just, you know, announced, uh, you know, trillions of dollars. Um, and then you've got economies where there is no recovery package. You know, they're, they're looking to see what bit of aid they can get and aid you know, always has its own downside. So the, the circumstances are somewhat different. And we know that before the pandemic, in the five, 10 years prior to the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, we'd already seen, when I was looking at some, at some OECD data, we'd already seen a significant increase in inequalities, inequalities between countries and inequalities within countries, the inequalities that you just made mention of. Um, so I guess, when we say we're not, you know, I mean, I'm not here to be pessimistic and I'm not pessimistic. I am, I am a person with hope, um, but I'm also a pragmatist and a realist. Um, and I think it's so important that as we try to look forward, we are really conscious of what the, you know, what the context is. And if, and if we're con conscious of the context, then we may, perhaps we can be a bit more challenging of what it is that's required. Um, I was on the reason I was late was I was on a call with UPenn and we were talking about um, COP um, 26 um, and, you know, the fact that we don't want it to just be another talking shop and that there has to be money on the table. There has to be money on the table for city governments to make the changes that are required. And those changes that we require for um, climate um, are changes that we can, we also need to say we require for pandemic preparedness and more and more so, you know, something like affordable housing, you know, slum upgrades. These are not nice to haves. These are imperatives because what the pandemic has shown is that if you're not, if we don't get rid of the virus in one country, we don't get rid of the virus anywhere. Um, and we don't have the luxury. And, and coming now to your initial question, what, what have I learned? I mean, I guess Ebola was a pandemic, although it was three countries. So it was referred to as an epidemic. Um, but we lost 
um, 3,589 people, um, which seems like nothing now when you think about COVID. Um, but what, what for your country, about? such an enormous loss. And yeah, it was. I'm sorry. It was. Yes. Um, and I guess the economic impact, I mean, and you, you've, we've seen that all over the world, but we went to minus 21% um, um, GDP um, in that one year period, um, one to two year period. Um, but what did we learn? We learned the importance of community, so similar to what's being said now. And we learned the importance of community as being the solution. You cannot solve um, a public health crisis. You cannot solve climate change. You can't even solve, you know, the economic crisis that we have um, without the involvement and the buy-in of the people in your city or in, you know, in, in the locality in which you're speaking about. Um, so for me, that was the biggest lesson. And, and that's something I've really, I've really taken on board and brought into the way I do city management, recognizing that, you know, big scale problems, you can sit in your office, have all your nice flip charts, all your nice whiteboards, do all your plans. Mm -hmm. If the people don't get it, if the people don't go with you, you're not going anywhere. But the great news is when they get it, they push you forward um, and you can actually see transformational change. Um, I don't want to simplify it because it's not simple, um, but it is, it is true. That is true. The community ownership can actually lead to significant improvements in, in the way your city functions. Can I stay on what you raised about climate change? Um, I want to ask both mayors, what is the most important thing that you need to do to prepare your city for climate impacts that you're already seeing, that you know you're going to see in the coming years? And what is the, the biggest hurdle or obstacle to that? Um, can we start with you, Mary Vaughn? Um, so 28% of my, so we're in a non-industrialized country, okay? So my greenhouse gas emissions are different to yours. But 28% of my greenhouse gas emissions come from transport. And it doesn't come from um, what you'd expect. It comes from the fact that we don't have mass transit. And so we have a lot of low occupancy, old vehicles, particularly the taxis and the what we call porters, the little minibuses. Um, it's so imperative that we change that. So we're in the process of trying to introduce a cable car system, um, which because we're mountainous, so we've got that advantage. Um, and so that would introduce mass transit or increase productivity, economic productivity, increase property values, whilst at the same time dealing with, with greenhouse gas emissions. The other area of um, massive emissions uh, um, is, is waste, um, you know, untreated waste, un, uh, open dumping. Um, so we're trying to build, or we are building um, a sanitary landfill. You know, other people are talking about recycling. We're looking, we're working on recycling, but at the very limit, at the, at sort of, at the beginning, we actually need to be able to safely collect waste, all waste. Um, and then from the perspective of um, carbon sink, we're planting a million trees, but planting a million trees in a city where 82% of your population use charcoal and firewood for cooking fuel um, means that we are we're planting, we are actually tracking them digitally. Every tree is, is on a tree tracker app 
and we're protecting those trees. We're protecting the trees that we're planting, but we need to make sure that other people aren't cutting down the other trees that we, you know, that are already there. So addressing alternative fuel um, and, and really policies. And I would, I would say that in a country where um, there's a strong donor dependency still, this is where international community needs to come on board. This is where the international frameworks, the, the Bretton Woods institutions need to internalize climate change. Um, and we need to begin to use their influence as a lever to protect environments. Um, Mayor Serge. Your yes, most important thing to prepare your city for climate change. Yeah. Four square miles surrounded on three sides by water. On the north side, a national wildlife refuge, South San Diego Bay. So wetlands on the south, the Tijuana Estuary, the US-Mexico border, a national wildlife refuge. And then to the west, uh, the Pacific Ocean. So uh, surrounded by water, we did a study on the impact of sea level rise over the next 100 years, had really top scientists involved in that in our community. We found that 30 to 40 percent of our town will be impacted by co significant coastal flooding by uh, in the next hundred years, and that um, you know that includes 30 percent of our roads, our schools, our public works buildings, so that um, and all of our major infrastructure. So really, the challenge is the desire is there is that's to first and foremost start moving our infrastructure away from harm's way, right? So then the challenge becomes how do you pay for that? And I think the issue of equity and, you know, Richard, you raised this, this pandemic's highlighted the issue of race and class and, you know, the haves and the have nots, um, not only in the United States, but at least here, I'm on the US-Mexico border, the contrast with our contrast with Mexico. But um, the issue is, you know, a city's some of the, we're an anomaly, working class city on, on the beach in Southern California, one of the wealthiest areas and most privileged areas in the world. Um, we don't have any money, zero. I'm trying to start a parks and rec department so my working class kids can you know, play after school. We don't have money to move our pump stations and roads inland. So the issue of equity in California becomes critical. Uh, our, city's one of, our state's one of the most unequitable, unequal states in the country. Uh, one of the highest po poverty rates is to make sure that the money flows first and foremost to those in need, not to those who have the most. And so most coastal cities are bastions of wealth and privilege. And so we're trying to make sure that those flow, the monies and funds for addressing climate change uh, and mitigating or adapting to climate change go to cities like mine, right? Rather than cities are like Beverly Hills on the beach. So that's I, the challenge and that's what we're gonna keep, we keep pushing for and, and, and continue to address. Can I ask you two questions about that? What is the uh, current risk that you face with sea level rise. And when you talk about moving infrastructure out of harm's way or moving things out of harm's way, how do you convince people that their apartments or houses or schools may have to move? Yeah, so first, uh, we're already seeing coastal flooding. We've seen more, especially with El Nino. And uh, we had some uh, a foot of, uh, of sea level rise um, because of uh, thermal expansion. A few years ago, we saw coastal flooding when the tides and surf got a little bigger that I've never seen before. And I've been obsessively watching the beach that you see behind me. Uh, it was during hurricane surf um, since I was a kid, right? And we actually have scientists from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography that have come up with a buoy system. They can actually predict when coastal flooding will happen street end by street end um, to the literally to the, to the minute. Uh, they've developed that technology off our beach. So that's really helped us a lot prepare for that. But it's costing us tens of thousands of dollars every winter just to, to address that, that sea level rise. Number two, 
the flooding, the catastrophic flooding isn't going to happen right away. So we have time. So that's why the city has to first and foremost focus on public infrastructure, publicly owned re resources, right? Our stormwater infrastructure, our roads, our electrical system, et cetera, because we don't have the time and money to focus on private property. Um, that's a whole other discussion and issue that we have to address with state officials. But right now the city owns public resources and we have to start focusing on those resources first and foremost, because that's what we can do. But what we've made clear to our private property owners is no one is coming to the rescue. There will be, if your house gets knocked down in a storm, there will be no public funds to help you. I think that's, that's been an important message. Uh, I think a lot of folks get it. A lot of folks, you know, in the last few years in the United States have determined that there is no such thing as sea level rise or climate change, and that's all a hoax. And so communication piece, as Mary Vaughn knows, is critical, and that's something we have, it's a challenge that we have to continue to work on. Okay. Um, my last question before we move on to audience questions is, what do you think a post-pandemic city looks like? Um, and you can talk about whether that, you know, how do people get to and from work? Do people do more remote work more frequently? Um, what does public transit look like? What does housing look like? You get to choose, but I'd love your thoughts on the post-pandemic city and what, in your view, that could look like. Um, Samane Mwafi, can we start with you? Yes, sure. Uh, what's what's I would suggest is has to do with not not so much with the kind of like with the form of the city, but with um, with the way it's policed. Uh, in this year, we we did see a, a kind of like a, a very big rise in two different kinds of violence being tied together: um, police brutality and um and environmental destruction and i'm talking about what i mean by these two i'm talking about tear gas i'm talking about an excessive and repetitive use of tear gas that we saw in the us um with the black lives matter protests we saw it in santiago de chile um when we had we had um lgbtq activists mapuche people working class people gathering in the roundabout trying to voice their discontent we had it and and so we had it in hong kong with the beginning of the pandemic like with these um and and we had you know like and 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 these these excessive uses of tear gas of course they have affected the the neighborhoods because they weren't you know we're talking about a residential neighborhood when you have elderly when you have kids living it's the air of the residents who's been affected so what i would like to be improved is the abolition of tear gas as a police tactic period universe like across the globe um that's what i would ask hmm. uh richard florida what does the post-pandemic city look like for better and for worse, a lot like the current city. Um, I think that too much has been made of this urban exodus and the idea that people were moving away from big dense cities. One, it's not even true that big dense cities were hit harder by the pandemic, especially in advanced countries that spread 
probably worse in some of the most remote rural areas of the Dakotas. And it's clear now that the data suggests it's not true. Many of those relocations were either temporary, were college kids and young people going back home to ride out the pandemic with mom or dad, or family formation moves. People who were having a family wanted more space, but instead of moving over several years, moved all together in one time. I think that we're going to see some reshaping of the way we work with remote work in the advanced world. I think that the central business districts of cities, these office tower districts, I often call them the last gasp of the industrial age where we packed and stacked mm. office functionaries. They're going to get a hit that I think is, is worse. They're, and hopefully the opportunities to remake them as better neighborhoods. Um, like what? I think that inequity is going to grow. And I think that's what really keeps me up at night. And, you know, in the main, Mayor Yvonne, you know, with my own blinders on, I've been thinking about the inequities of the advanced world and the inequities of race and class. What really terrifies me listening to you is, is when you said, where's the aid package? There's a gazillion dollar stimulus package for the advanced world. Where is aid? And, and I just wanna go back and I think this is the biggest impact. I think you're right. I did play a little bit of a role in persuading the United Nations to make cities at the SDG 11. I did play, for, we, we called for safe, inclusive, resilient and sustainable cities. But I think it's the one area in my life that I've really failed. I have tried so hard to make this narrative of investment in cities and urbanization and, and lifting up the global South and developing world. It's really hard to get people to listen. Uh, you know, it's almost as if you're up against a brick wall. And I'm just saying this as an intellectual, not as the mayor. It is so hard to convince the aid agencies and the World Bank and the development banks and the, and the foundations. And, and I just want to say this to everyone. It's almost as if the philanthropic community has abandoned this. Not completely, but if you look at the wave of investment, they found other causes. And, and I think, look, you're not going to have healthy human civilizations if urbanization, we had a point in time when urbanization was lifting a lot of boats. That point is over. Urbanization now lifts a few boats, but, but what urbanization is doing in the global South is it, the boats are sinking. So I think it, 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 it's on all of our shoulders, Mayor, and I thank you for reminding me of this, you know, that, that even as the United States and other countries begin to get, and the vaccines, just think about the, the need to get vaccines. As, as the advanced countries get vaccinated and want to celebrate, let's take a pause and say we have a big world. And as you said, Mayor, if all of us aren't healthy, none of us are healthy. All of us are at risk. So I think, I think this regalvanizes my effort and regalvanizes all of us. Even as conditions in the advanced world are improving, we've got to make the whole world urban system a better place. What does your post-pandemic city look like, Mary Vaughn? Well, I just want to say thank you to Richard for, um, you know, for that response for the for responding to those thoughts. Um, and I also want to say that I don't believe that aid is the answer. Um, I believe that that what we have um, is a situation where at the end of the day, um, human beings, I we, it, this is it reminds me so much the the, the, the discussion around the global south and the, and the global north reminds me so much of the discussion of feminism, you know, and gender equality. Um, the fact that you know men don't want to make space because it, they feel they're going to get less. Uh, and I believe that you know that the the way the the um, world trade 
uh, agreements are done, um, the way tariffs are set up. I mean, there's an economic advantage, which is held by some. Um, and, you know, many of those who stand to benefit from that economic advantage as it's configured now do not want to yield that space, just the same way many men don't want to yield space to women. This is a big discussion. We could go on forever on it. Um, but just to say that I don't think it's as simple as, you know, give us some aid. No, um, there's so much more. I mean, let's not talk about the, 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 the war that goes on forever in DRC whilst mining continues so that everybody's cell phones can be, you know, operational. Come on, you know, um, we know this is deep and we know it's hard to untangle. Um, but, you know, I think in a post pandemic world, um, I guess what I was going to say is I don't think there is a post pandemic world. I think that we're in a world now where we're likely to see more pandemics. Um, and what we just need to be thinking about is how do we structure the world so that we can we can deal with this um, when the next one comes along. Um, and that I'll say again, um, when I took on the, the, the when I took on this crazy idea of being mayor um, of the city, um, it's a huge, huge problem. And, and people say to me, like, how do you, you know, how are you going to tackle this? And I, and my favorite expression is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Um, and this is what I see. I see that we have huge challenges globally. Um, my, my colleague mayor is, is talking about, you know, um, the, the, the crisis he's in every single day uh, with the sewage problem. He needs to deal with that. Um, if another pandemic comes along, water is a major issue. He needs to just continue to deal with the problems. We need to continue to deal with the problems. We need to, we need to take an integrated approach. We need to be real. We need to recognize that their vested interests that, that want things to stay the, the way they are. Uh, and we need to continue to join the dots with those who actually believe that having more people have a better quality of life is overall better for all of us. Um, and I want to applaud Richard because I love SDG 11 um, and, you know, to have met somebody who has something to do with making sure it existed is wonderful. Um, it's it's now a question of let's see that become a reality because, um, you know, we're talking about the last decade before 2030. We, you know, we're already into 2021 um, and we know how far we, way we are from making those SDGs real, but it's a question of will. It's a question of will at the local level, at the national level, at the international level. Um, and, and I'm convinced it's a question of willing collaborators um, who believe in a better world, um, joining together and, and being able to tap into just by sheer volume and noise. You know, look at what's gone on with Black Lives Matter. Did we win? Did that win? Not the whole war, but battles were won. So perhaps not the post-pandemic future, but uh, a future in which there is likely to be uh, another pandemic. Uh, Mayor Serge Dedina, what does it look like for your city in the in the coming months and years? Well, yeah, just first, just a comment on the international, the north-south issue. You know, I'm literally on the U.S.-Mexico border. My town borders, uh, if you have images of the border wall on the beach for people hanging onto the wall, that's the southern end of the city of Imperial Beach, right? I was actually in the water when we had gunships in the ocean and DHS secretaries on the beach. It was pretty heavy and negotiating with the Marines about when they were gonna uh, deal with people crossing the border. So 
heavy stuff. So the pandemic has really brought north-south issues to, to me, um, but also to highlight the issue of the fact that without addressing the issue of Mexico, we couldn't recover. And then now also as we vaccinate, I was one of the leading mayors, uh, leading voices on the US-Mexico board to say, if we don't start vaccinating, working with Mexico to get vaccines going, we're not gonna help recover here on, on the border as well. So that's important. But what we saw during the pandemic was people obsessively, obsessively, compulsively hanging out outside, right? In Southern California, they were at the beach, not on the weekends, seven days a week from morning till night and after night. They were on every trail and every park in the mountains, in the deserts. And, you know, that's for someone who celebrates conservation in the outdoors, that's a good thing. Although I wanted my, my spots back to be alone in. So it's kind of funny. But so the metaphor I think becomes parks and rec, right? Like connecting our communities, getting people connected, that becomes the lens which we address equity because it will make sure that every kid, you know, whose parents are working all the time can go to a parks and rec program. And I think the lens becomes whatever someone does and activities they do, then we're gonna support them to do it. It means whether it's chess or computer games or ballet or swimming, skateboarding, BMXing, I don't care what it is, we get them engaged. And we had interviews for our parks and rec board three women, one from Mexico who told us she had better parks and rec in Mexico than in the United States mm. in our city, which we all felt bad about. But they really emphasized that parks and rec is a metaphor for democracy building, for community, right? For people talking to each other and, and hanging out with each other. So it's, and just being engaged and, and this crisis that they were seeing in our community. So, you know, our, what we've seen, I've seen also in the last few years is we have outdoor gyms now, we have outdoor yoga classes. Mm. Um, that outdoors is the new tavern, right? For this new generation, they don't want to hang out in a bar. They want to hang out outside in the yoga class and they want to work out and lift weights outside. We've built public gyms outside. And so yeah. I think more important than ever is get engaged, get people connected, foster outdoor activities and make the city a place where you can connect to nature and mm. plug into nature immediately. That is something that we have seen that people need and need, they didn't need to devour mm. nature more than ever. I'm going to move really quickly to a couple of audience questions that are coming on. And because we're really out of time, I didn't do a very good job of cutting you all off because you were saying really interesting things. So the, um, the first question could apply to either of you, Mayor Serge or Mayor Yvonne. Do, and it is, do we plan to stay and fight for cities and locations that are vulnerable to climate change, like Imperial Beach, Miami, New Orleans, or do the cities make plans to move to higher ground. Does anyone want to take that quickly? Nirvana, I know if you, I can talk, I can mention yes. that. Well, no, I, I think, look, first we have, we have a while before this catastrophic flooding happens. And I think looking in Miami, they're making changes. I think, you know, New Orleans and Louisiana, they're starting to address these issues. We have to focus on adapt, adaptation first and foremost. We have a potential infrastructure bill that's going to spend a lot of time on natural climate solutions. We need to plant trees. We need to plant mangroves. We need to plant we re, reforest or replant our estuaries. Uh, we need to restore our rivers. So there's a lot of we can do before we talk talking about moving cities, but let's invest radically and significantly in adaptation and, and making our cities more resilient and using nature to do that first and foremost. And we can we can get we can go a long way before we talk about moving cities. Um here's a question that is for Richard and um Samane Mwafi, but I think it's actually a question for any of you to handle. The question is, 
Uh, if you were to address informal settlements, um, if you could design them from scratch, what would that look like? And I, I might just amend that question. You can't really design informal settlements where people live right now. They have communities there. They have people there. Um, what could you do right now to make them better? Well, Mary Vaughn could, yeah, please. Mary Vaughn said this, and she said that it's not about aid. And it is such a brilliant comment. I once asked Jane Jacobs this, and it's the one time she chastised me. I said, after the attacks on 9-11, I said, Jane, what can we do to help New York? You and I as experts, what can we do? And she said, Richard, you just asked the wrong question. You could go in there and ask the people, the residents, the neighbors, the shopkeepers. And I sent Mayor Vaughn a note in the chat. There's a great essay on informal settlements by a man named John Turner. And the topic of that is that housing is not a noun, it's a verb. And that housing in those communities are built by people. And all we have to do is empower them. And I just want to make one caveat. The problem in the informal settlements is that people have no time other than to tend to daily needs. There's no time for anything else other than to get food, clean the clothes, get the household ready. If we could just intervene and help them gain a little bit more time to focus on community building. So I think it's empowering the residents of the informal settlements rather than a master plan. Mary Vaughn, do you want to add to that? What, what would your yeah. citizens in your informal settlements say to that question? Okay, so um, I'll give a very practical example. We had a fire, a terrible fire um, on the 24th of March um, in an informal settlement. 7,500 people are currently homeless. Um, the fire trucks could not access because the building permit, building permit had been given to build in a place that blocked access to that community. Um, so the, the, our Slum Dollars Association have a slogan, take the slum out of the people, not the people out of the slum. And what I would say is that what you can do is you can upgrade. I mean, I spoke, I've spoken to the residents in other informal settlements. I've said, you're telling me you want water, but I can't even get a truck up here. I can't even get a car up here. So are you going to be prepared for us to remove some of the houses to reorganize, you know, we can sit down together and we can do a map and we really are engaging our communities. So informal settlements, what can you do? You can do things. You can bring lighting, you can bring sanitation, you can expand roads. We've decided as a minimum, every settlement needs to be able to get a fire truck in because in the last six weeks, we've had seven fires, you know, and there are thousands of people homeless now there's a, a, a cynical friend of mine sent me a message. She, she was a city leader in East Africa. And she says, when you start seeing so many fires, you really have to ask yourself if somebody's trying to clear the poor people out so they can redevelop that land. Um, are there developers behind this? And, and those are other factors, you know, um, but at the, in the simplest answer would be, I do believe you can take the slum out of informal settlements you can take the slum out of the people um and it but it requires investment and it requires planning and it requires alternatives because some people will need to move you cannot have the same number of people in that space and bring sanity to it so there comes another issue when they move what's the access to jobs because it's economic economic reasons primarily that drive people into slums you know they're there because it's access to work but i'm conscious that we're running out of time and i've spoken enough so i'll stop <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to close by asking you all just one very quick lightning round. Um, 
if you fast forward to say, you know, nine years from now in 2030, what is the place of cars in your city? Richard, you want to take that first? Hopefully less, but probably more. Samane Moafi? Oh, I, are you muted? <laughs> no, you're just speechless. What is the role of cars in 2030 in your city? Maybe different kinds of cars, you know? I mean, I I see um, we, with the pandemic, what we saw was a problem with the public transport, right? People do not trust it anymore because, because it's shared. And so um, maybe we need different kinds of cars. If it is to revert back to that, and if it is to rethink what our public transport is, we should, you know? Hmm. Mayor Serge Dedina, you're in the part of a world <laughs> which is sort of synonymous with cars, private cars. Yeah, we're, we're, we're making all our streets to make them more walkable and bikeable, um, bike, green bike lanes, um, you know, and we'll have done that to every major thoroughfare and what we call safe routes to school to make sure our kids can walk and, and ride their on bikes to school. So that's, you know, seen in our city. So that's important. And People have to start walking to the beach and riding their bikes because there's no parking anyway. So they're unhappy when they, they ask me for more parking lots, but there are none. We can't afford it. So ride your bike. Mary Vaughn, in cities in the global south, especially, um, a lot of people aspire to get their first car to improve their lives. Yeah. What is the role of cars in your city in 2030? I would love to have our cable car system up and running and expanded so that we we, we leapfrog. We don't go through that um, um, cycle of going to cars like has happened in the West and then now moving to bicycles and moving. Uh, um, so yes, our city is small enough. Um, if, if we have good public transport, uh, I know the pandemic concerns, but at the end of the day, the the, the pollution from the cars, you know, um, actually probably costs more lives um, than, than, than the risk of being in, in, a, in a cable car. So being able to provide that alternative and the walkability, most people walk anyway, long distances, but making it a more pleasant experience. We're about to do uh, our first city marathon this year, and we're just promoting this idea of healthy living, healthy lifestyles, um, and you know, put, park your car. Don't come into the city center with a car. I have learned so much um, from all of you. So really, thank you uh, immensely for this insightful conversation. Um, thank you to Zocalo and to the University of Toronto for presenting uh, this evening's conversation. You can find all of this on uh, Zocalo's website tomorrow. So thank you all of us, all of you to, uh, for joining us and enjoy the rest of your evening.